If you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 955 and 956. And today we're going to look at this passage in chapter 7 that we skipped over last week. Last week we were looking at the, the principles of marriage and singleness. And we saw that there really was no right answer for everyone. Marriage and singleness are not a matter of obedience or, or disobedience, not a matter of sin, but it's a matter of calling, it's a matter of gifting. And Paul urged those who were single to remain single, and those who were married, even if they were married to unbelievers, to remain married. Well, today we're going to look at really the general principles that Paul applied to marriages and see how, how they apply beyond marriage and how they apply really to all of life. So 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts or anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. And, Father, I do pray that you be with me. Help me to focus. I know that I am distracted. And, Father, as Nathan has prayed, Lord, I pray that I will preach with your power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for each of us, just as I am distracted, each one of us are distracted. But, Father, the best comfort that we can have is your word, and your word read and your word preached. So, Father, I pray now that you will speak to us. We will see Christ, and we will each be transformed more into his image. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, in my 23-year secular career before going off to seminary, my favorite job and probably my favorite time of life was really the summer of 1999 to the summer of 2001. And as many of you know, 1999 was when we moved from New Jersey to Blacksburg, Virginia. And we moved there in order to lend to establish residency in Virginia. She, she was hoping to go to vet school. And there were no veterinary colleges in New Jersey. And, and the likelihood of getting accepted from out of state was very small. So we knew we had to move and relocate. And we fell in love with Virginia and we moved there. And uh, we basically put all our eggs in one basket. And there was no guarantee when we moved there that she would accept it. We had to go on faith. But we saw very clearly early on that God had directed this move. I was hired as a programmer analyst, too, in the Information Technology Acquisitions Department of Virginia Tech University. And to tell the truth, this was a job that I was not qualified for. I had degrees in engineering. I was a project manager. I was not a computer programmer. There was no, there, I looked at this job. I didn't even think I would get a call in for an interview. But I got an interview, and I got hired. And I found out afterwards that my boss had actually offered this job to three people before me, and they all turned him down. He was about to lose this job. 
And he told me if I came in there and I had my hair combed, I was getting the job. So it wasn't on my merits. It was my hair, which is very strange because my hair combing is not one of my, my big traits that I have. But he took a chance on this Yankee engineer. And then another amazing thing happened. This was a state job. And those of you who have state or government jobs, you know that they have a, a salary range. And usually you come in at the bottom of the salary range, especially since I had no, no experience in this field. And this was significantly less than I was making in New Jersey. And it was really less than we would be able to ideally live on in Virginia. But my boss asked me, said, how much do you need to live? And you know, I did some calculations. It was less than New Jersey, but I gave him a number. It was much higher than the start, probably about 10 years worth that it would take me to get to that point. And he made it happen. I got, again, that was unheard of, someone coming in at the mid-range in there. And a jo- again, a job that you're not qualified for. And, and, and that wasn't the only thing. Virginia Tech paid all our moving expenses. They, they put us up in an apartment for three months. And again, this was unheard of for someone at my level. I had a friend who was hired as a faculty member. They didn't offer him that. This was offered to people who were coming in as deans or, or executives. But again, the Lord provided what we needed at this, at, this, at this point. And the best thing about this job is my boss was a Christian. He was a mature Christian. He was an elder in his church. And the department was filled with Christians. We would... We would we routinely do, have prayer meetings, pray before a, a staff meeting. We would do Bible study. And again, remember, I wasn't, as I mentioned several times, I was not qualified for this job. But less than a week before this job started, my boss in our department was giving a completely new responsibility. I actually had to start up a new department from the, from the ground up. A responsibility that my boss, who was a very good technically, he was a good programmer, this was not in his skill set. But it wasn't mine as a, as a project manager that I came in. This was something that I was perfectly suited for. Again, God put me right where, he, where I needed to be at the right time. And, and, and I had so much fun at this job. It really was. We, we, we had a team again. The team was all Christian. And we were building something from the ground up. And it was basically, uh, we had freedom to, to, to an autonomy in our work. We weren't really constrained by, by a lot of the procedures in the university. I like to think of it, we had a, a skunk works we basically, we, we had a, a problem to solve and we figured it out. And we didn't have many people, you know, we also called it the Wild West, how we were doing some stuff. But it was, it was so much fun. And we saw it, we had an immediate impact on students. We were successful. We loved it. And I also had a lot of freedom with my time. I wasn't stuck in an office. I wasn't stuck in a factory like I used to be. I got to spend a lot of time on, on campus meeting with different people, different departments. And I remember one time early on just walking across the beautiful Virginia Tech campus. It is one of the most beautiful college campuses in the country. And it was a beautiful day, and I'm looking, I say, I get paid to work here. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I had come from a factory. I was working in a, in a, in a you know, where it was like a rust belt foundry. I mean, so this was a beautiful, completely different change. And it wasn't just the work. The work-life balance was great. I only lived two miles from my office. I would come home for lunch every day. Lynn and I would go for a walk. I would see the kids, uh, Jessica and, and Sarah, when they were little. Uh, I mean, it was amazing. We, we, we had a lot of good friends, friends that we still have today. We were involved in Bible study. Lynn and I got involved in the, in the Christian uh, Veterinary Fellowship where we made many great friends there. And, and, and we were both growing tremendously spiritually during this time. I remember I, I had a group of guys, we would actually get together for about two hours at lunch. I had the freedom to take a two-hour lunch, and we would just study Jonathan Edwards' sermons. I mean, can you think of anything better than that? I mean, this was my golden time. And then in the summer of 2001, 
there was a reorganization. And at this point, uh, me and, and, and at this point, I was supervising several several groups, and one of the groups got moved under another director. And uh, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't the same. See, I moved, and, and then from then on, I had moved to different departments at Virginia Tech, and at Radford, continuing to go up to higher level positions, but it was never the same. And even my old boss, he got a new job, and and our little skunk works was disbanded, and I realized that I could never go back. And this job and this this time in our lives, it was really a gift that God had given to us. It was a time not just of, of professional satisfaction, but it was a time of tremendous spiritual growth. And it was, I looking back, I see it was a time of spiritual preparation. God was giving me this little bit of time to prepare me, prepare us for things that were going to happen later in our life, including coming here to be your pastor. But it was over. And even though I found myself continually wanting to go back to this several times. And maybe some of you have felt this way. Maybe some of you had a time in your life that you wishing that you could return. Your golden time, you know, either professionally or spiritually or relationally. A place where you wish you could return and everything would be perfect. Or maybe you haven't actually reached that place yet. Maybe your perfect place, your perfect life is in the future. Maybe you have a dream job that you're looking forward to. Or maybe you're looking to a special relationship. Or what I call the if-only stage. Maybe you're in the if-only stage. You said, if only I had that job. If only I were married. If only I were not married. If only I were retired. If only I lived somewhere else. And we each look at some aspect of our circumstance, our, our job, our relationship status, our success, you name it. We all look to something out there, something out there for our significance, something out there for our security, for our identity. We are constantly searching. We're constantly changing our outward circumstance in hope that we will find this perfect place, this, this, common, this is a common human condition. And that's what Paul addresses in this passage today. He's, uh, he's addressing this common condition, to, to the, the urge to look out there, to look at our outward circumstances, to look on the horizontal plane, that is in the, in the, in the physical realm, with, with people, to look out there for our security, for our identity, for our significance, for our purpose. And when we do this, we're trying to find something that these, in these outward circumstances that they could never deliver. Even the best jobs, even the the best marriages and relationships or the best places to live cannot deliver. We are looking for them to provide something that only God can provide. And to be perfectly honest, even my perfect job at Virginia Tech, it was really not about the job. The thing that made this, this time great was the tremendous spiritual growth that I experienced, the closeness to the Lord that I experienced during this time. It wasn't really about the job. And, and, and to tell the truth, I, I started to feel restless. The job started to change about six months before, before the reorganization. And I did have an opportunity to stay at the old department. But it was different. It was changed. It was not the, the skunk works that we had. And, and I thought that if I changed, I went to another department, this would lessen this restlessness. But really, looking back, the Lord was pushing me on. It was time to move beyond this golden time, time to move beyond this time of spiritual growth and training. And I didn't realize it at the time that the joy I had attributed to my job 
was mostly the result of this deepening relationship that I had with Christ. My time on my knees, my time in Bible studies, Jonathan Edwards studies, my time growing in my faith. Now, a big part of that was the fact that I had a mature uh, Christian as a, as a boss, and, and he was mentoring me during this time, and I worked with so many other Christians. Again, this was totally new to me. I, I came from a, a godless corporate environment and come into a place where we're actually praying before staff meetings. And I think the Corinthians made the same mistake I had made. I think the Corinthians were tempted to look at their outward circumstances to provide the security, the identity, the purpose that we all seek, but can only be found in Christ. And remember, this section we're looking at today is is within this larger context that we looked at last week, where it's talking about marriage. And many within the Corinthian church, they have been looking at their marital status, whether they were single or not single, and they were looking for something that only Christ could provide. And as such, if they were not married, they thought if they could only be married, then they would have the significance they desired. Or if they were married to an unbeliever, if they could only get rid of this unbeliever, get rid of this dead weight, and then I could have the joy and happiness that I desire. And to those tempted to find their, their deepest identity in their marital status, as we saw last week, Paul advises them to remain as they are, to live as they were called. He's saying getting married or getting divorced will not give you what you seek, will not give you the significance that you seek. Well, in today's passage, Paul addresses two additional areas where we are tempted to find our identity. And the first is in their religious status or the pride they have in what they do. And by extension, we can say pride in their vocation, in their job. That's the first area. The second area is their cultural status, basically pride in what they have, looking for their significance in what they have. And this is what we're going to look at today. And we all face these same temptations. They are basically, one, to find our identity in what we do or find our identity in what we have. But the solution is the same, really, to both of these, as it was with marriage. And it's, let's first look at the general principle and then look at how this principle is applied to what we do and to what we have. And we see this general principle, this general command in verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now notice first that Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. What this tells us is this is not specific to the Corinthians. It's not, it's not only their situation. This is a general principle. This is a general principle to a universal temptation that we all face. And this command that Paul is giving is to live the life the Lord has assigned. It's trusting. It's trusting in God's providence. It's trusting that the Lord has given them and has placed them, at least in the moment, where he wants them to be. Now, this is not saying that we are never to change. It's not saying we're never to do something different. Rather, it's saying that our joy and our significance should not be contingent upon our outward situation. Truthfully, as as Paul says in verse 21, our outward circumstances should ultimately not concern us. Paul says, if you are a slave, that's what a bondservant was, as a slave. If you're a slave, if you can get your freedom, by all means do so. Getting out of slavery is a good thing. But if God in his sovereignty has assigned this to you, it is not a concern. Whether you are a slave or not does not affect your true status, which is in Christ. And what we see here is really revolutionary. 
It's a revolutionary shift in the way we look at these outward circumstances, how we look at our jobs, how we look at our social status, our marriage, our religious resume. And we no longer see these things as the source of our identity, as the source of our security or our significance or even our ultimate joy. Now, of course, there's certainly temporal joy in all of these things. But our ultimate joy, our true source of these things can only be found in one place, can only be found in our union with Christ. See, our identity is not our jobs. It's not our social status. It is that we are a new creation in Christ. We are a beloved child of God who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has been forgiven of all our sins and made perfectly righteous by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is our identity. Our security is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our security is that neither life, nor death, nor rulers, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our significance is that we are joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs to all things. How can we be more significant than that? The entire universe is ours. And our ultimate joy is in one place, one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, our union with him. And these things that we seek to find our outward circumstances, these things we seek to find in our outward circumstances can only be found in Christ. And looking anywhere else will always lead to a disappointment. It will lead to frustration. And the change in our thinking is to no longer see these circumstances as the source of that which only Christ can can provide. But rather, we see these circumstances as the place, the place where we can glorify Christ, the place where we can make him known, where we can serve others in his name. And this we can do in whatever circumstance the Lord in his providence puts us. And do you see how freeing this attitude is? Do you see how it frees us from frustration? It frees us from anxiety that we we think, I've got to get it right. I've got to choose the right job. I've got to get my outward circumstance all lined up. It frees us from from this misery of living in there, if only. If only I had that job. If only I had that relationship. If only I had a child. If only I had enough money. It frees us from all of those things. And we can see that God in his providence, his wise providence, has chosen the place that he wants us at this moment. My friends, this is freedom. Now let's take a look at these two areas where we are tempted to find our significance. The first is in our religious status. It's in what we do. Take a look at verses 18 and 19. It says, Was anything, anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. See, circumcision was the outward sign of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. And the sign was meant that they belonged to God. They were his people. And circumcision in and of itself has no meaning. It doesn't mean anything. What is important is the spiritual reality to which circumcision pointed. And the reality is that they had a regenerated heart a heart that was no longer in rebellion against God, but trusted in God and trusted his means of atonement. In the Old Testament, they were the ceremonial laws. They were the sacrifices. They were the Sabbath. And all of these pointed to Christ. 
And all of these were fulfilled in Christ. And the evidence of this regeneration was a heart, a heart that loved God, a a heart that loved his commandments and kept his commandments, as we see in verse 19. Now, for the New Testament believer, baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And the signs and shadows of the Old Testament, they are fulfilled in Christ. So Christians are no longer bound to the sacrifices, no longer bound to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. All of these were fulfilled in Christ. And this side of the cross, circumcision has absolutely no spiritual significance. There was no need for anyone, Jew or Gentile, to be circumcised. Now baptism is the sign that points toward this reality. But in the New Testament church, which was still mostly Jewish at this time, some taught that Gentiles needed to be circumcised and needed to adopt all these Jewish ceremonial laws. Basically, they needed to become Jewish to be included in God's covenant people, to become Christians. And this idea is soundly refuted in Paul's letter to the Galatians, as well as the Jerusalem Council in in Acts 15. But given our human propensity to legalism, to works righteousness, to look to something that we do to earn our salvation, many in the early church, mostly Jews, but some Gentiles, sought out the rigors of keeping the ceremonial law and the circumcision, and they saw it as a badge of honor. To them, this gave them a sense of significance and identity. And even though they they didn't think that circumcision was necessary for salvation, they still thought it was a badge of honor. They thought it it, it was something external. It was something that they did to show that they were more mature, that they were more devout, that they were more holy. And this was something that they saw the mature Christians did. This is something to to make them seem above everyone else, something to make them stand out. This was They wanted an identity as a super-Christian. Now, obviously, circumcision is not a temptation for us today, but we see the same principle all over the place. Being a new creation in Christ is not enough for us. We have to look to something external. We look to something that we do. Again, being a new creation in Christ is not enough for us. And we see this both in in the religious realm and in our vocational realm. Religiously, we can look to our spiritual disciplines or our knowledge of the Bible or our knowledge of theology or our position as our identity, as our significance. You know, I have a morning devotional time. I've read through the entire Bible. I go to prayer meetings. I go to Bible studies. I'm a deacon. I'm an elder. I'm a pastor. All these are good things. These are ways that we grow in grace, ways we glorify God. But none of these are the source of our identity. Our source is Christ and only Christ. Me being a pastor, that's the way I serve. But my identity is primarily, first and foremost, in Christ. And only in Christ. And this can happen to us religiously, but more often, especially for people who are not in vocational ministry, we find our purpose, our identity, our significance in our secular vocation. I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. I'm a lawyer. I'm an engineer. Again, these are ways that we serve. These are good things. These are ways that we bring God glory. But none of these are the source of our identity. This source is only in Christ. 
And it's so hard for us to get past this. It's so hard for us to get past defining our significance in what we do rather than seeing our significance in what Christ has already done for us. But this change in perspective will unleash greater joy. It, and, and in fact, we will actually better glorify God in the things we have been called to because we are focusing on him and not focusing on our, ourselves and our own efforts. You see, when we identify in what we do, or we identify with what we have, we never have joy. We never can have humility. We are, we are either filled with pride when we do well, or we're filled with discouragement and despair when we do poorly. But if our security, if our sense of identity is in Christ, my friends, that never changes. And that is not dependent upon our performance. We also trust in God's sovereignty. We praise him both when we succeed and when we fail knowing that he gets the glory in both. I've mentioned this to, to several of you, but early on when I started preaching, I would be so nervous, so anxious before I would get up. And, and I would be afraid that I would misspeak, that I would say something wrong, I'd misinterpret the text, lose my place, just, just look bad. And the thing that really helped me to take away the nerves and take away the anxiety was to pray right before. And I pray this all the time. I say, Lord, even if I fall on my face, I pray that you are glorified. Even if I fall on my face, you're in, and truthfully, he is, he's glorified often more times than when I, when I fall on my face. And when I look silly, he looks, he looks great. So we see that people who are not circumcised, we see them seeking circumcision because they think that they will find significance in this outward thing that they do. But we also see in this passage, there are people who are circumcised who are seeking to remove the marks of circumcision. So what does this mean? Why do this? Well, Corinth, as you, as you know, is a Greek city. And in Greek culture, a major social institution was the gymnasium. And men would come together for fellowship and participate in athletic uh, competitions. But they did not have uniforms back then. They didn't have nice little gym clothes that they were wearing. These competitions were done in the buff. So if you were a Jewish man, you would be immediately recognized in the gymnasium. And the man who is seeking to remove the marks of circumcision, now I don't know exactly how that's done, but this person was seeking to remove this distinction. He, was, he wanted to outwardly conform with those around him. And this is a person who's ashamed of his past, ashamed of the fact that he's different than others, and he seeks his identity and his worth in being just like everyone else, fitting in with everyone else. But again, you realize it's the same thing. Again, it's looking to something that we do, something that we find our identity in, something we do. And this is finding our identity in our religious status. This is finding our identity in what we do. So that's the first area. The second area of temptation that Paul addresses in this passage is finding our identity in our cultural status or in what we have. And here now Paul is addressing the cultural institution of slavery. And I've discussed this in, in sermons in the past about the topic of slavery. Slavery was very common in ancient times. And I heard that, that there was an estimate in New Testament times, it could be as many as two-thirds of the population were actually slaves, or slaves were freed slaves. Only about one-third of the population was born free. Now, slavery was much different than the chattel slavery that took place in this country. First of all, it was not race-based. It was economic. And Scripture provided laws to regulate and protect the rights of the slaves. But in the Greek and, and the Roman society, the treatment of the slaves was pretty much up to the master of the slave. So if you had a good master, you could have a good life. But if you had a bad master, it was pretty much a horrible life. 
So slavery was not seen as a good thing. And Paul is clear that the slave should seek to gain his freedom if he can. But even if a person is a slave, this does not change his identity in Christ. Look at verses 21 through 23. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. And notice that in this entire passage, it talks about condition and calling. And calling in this passage is not speaking about a vocational calling, like I'm, I'm called to be a pastor. It's referring to the call of the gospel. It's speaking about the time when a person was called by Christ, when a person is converted, and a person becomes a new creation in Christ, is united to Christ. That is calling. That fact that the person is a new creation in Christ, that takes priority over everything else. This is the most important. This is the most significant, more significant, more important than our outward circumstances, which this text calls our condition. So our outward circumstances are our condition. Our calling is our regeneration when we are in Christ. And the thing that gives us comfort is when we are called to Christ, when we, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when we became a new creation, we see everything differently. We understand the relative insignificance of our outward temporary condition with respect to the the glorious reality of our eternal spiritual condition. And, And we also understand that we are no longer helpless victims tossed to and fro by the cruel hand of a merciless faith. No. We understand that our outward condition, even if it's the condition of slavery, is under the sovereign hand of our loving Heavenly Father. And we know that He works all things out all things together for our good and his glory. Romans 8.28 So this means that even the fact that a Christian is enslaved is in God's control. And God is using this evil condition. It's not a good condition, but he's using this evil condition for his glory and for the good of the Christian. As we saw in the, the Old Testament reading about Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was in prison. Those were evil. But God used all of that for good. And what this allows us to do is whatever circumstance we find ourselves is, as the scripture says, to not be concerned about it. Because slavery does not take away our identity in Christ. It does not take away our security. It does not take away our ultimate joy, which is in him. Slavery cannot touch our true self. And my friends, this is true of whatever social condition you may find yourself in. It could be poverty. It could be illness. It could be loneliness. It could be mourning. It could be needing something else, whatever it is, it cannot touch our true self. Our true identity is not in what we have, is not in what we don't have. And God is kind. God is so kind. He is so merciful. And he often, not always, but often, in his sovereignty, he will, take, he will provide relief and he will provide a way out of a difficult condition. God often, but not always, he will provide healing. He will provide, often, not always, he will provide resources or a job to relieve our poverty. He often, but not always, will provide companionship to relieve our loneliness. And when these opportunities arise, 
It's not a violation of Paul's instructions to take advantage of divine providence. As Paul says in verse 21, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But my friends, God doesn't always give those opportunities. God doesn't always heal. As we know, even frantic prayers, as we know all too well this morning. And when God in his sovereignty does not provide the answer we want, does not provide the relief, does not change our outward condition, my friends, Romans 8.28 is still true. We can still trust that he is using the hard providence in our life. And we are experiencing a hard providence this morning. We can trust that he is using it for our good and his glory. And this is true even when, or I should say this is true, especially when we don't understand why. We don't understand why he would allow something like this to happen. We don't allow, we don't understand why he would allow these difficult circumstances persist. We don't understand why he would not answer our prayer for healing. And the most encouraging, I think the most comforting part in our dealing with these difficult outward conditions is that we know that our cultural status, we know that whatever we have or whatever we don't have does not affect our relationship with Christ. It does not affect the source of our identity. It does not affect the source of our security or our significance. The source is Christ, and it is unaffected by our condition. And Paul reminds the, the Corinthians in verse 22, he says, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. That means those who are called to Christ, even if they're slave, in Christ they are free. That's their ultimate. Their ultimate is free. Ultimate condition. And likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So even if you are not a slave in this world, you still are a slave to Christ. And then Paul reminds both the free and the slave, both those who have high social status and those who have low social status, both those who have all they need and those who suffer want. He says in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And that is, do not let any person do not let anything in this world take away what Christ has given. And do not look to anything in this world to provide that which only Christ can provide. We were bought with a price. We are owned by Christ. We are spiritually free with respect to this world. We are not to become spiritually enslaved to anything. And in the final analysis, our outward condition doesn't matter. We have been called by the gospel. We are united to Christ. We belong to God. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let us pray. Father, help us to internalize this. Father, it is so hard. We always look at what we do and what we have for our security, for our identity. Father, help us to realize that if we are in Christ, we have everything we need. We are ultimately secure. There is nothing that can take us out of your hand. We are ultimately significant. We are heirs of all things. Father, we repent of looking at the things here, looking at our circumstances, looking at our condition, and having it affect our joy. Father, allow us to truly, to truly internalize these words. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.